Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover the movie adaptation of Hearts in Atlantis. Let's start the show. Per the description on IMDb, Hearts in Atlantis is the story of widowed Liz Garfield, Hope Davis, and her son Bobby, Anton Yelchin, when mysterious stranger Ted Brodigan, Sir Anthony Hopkins, enters their lives. That's it? That's all it's got. That's all IMDb says? It's pretty straightforward, Jay. Yeah, I guess. That makes sense. In addition to Hope Davis and Anthony Hopkins and Anton Yelchin, this movie also starred Mika Burum. Not sure if I'm pronouncing her name properly. She played Carol Gerber and David Morse as the adult version of Bobby Garfield, along with Celia Weston, who played Alana Stiles. Celia Weston wasn't exactly a top-billed member of the cast, but I thought she was worth calling out because she played Alana Stiles, and I thought that was a pretty important character for Bobby, even though she wasn't in the movie for very long. She might have only had the one scene, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, She'd have a speaking role in the second scene when Bobby goes back and gets the money. That's right. Yeah, you can see her, but she doesn't say anything. Yeah. And this movie was directed by Scott Hicks. I don't know what else he's done. I don't think anything else connected with Stephen King's stories. No, he did. Snow Falling on Cedars was the other sort of big movie he did around the same time. Um, not as important, but of interest to me is he did a lot of in excess videos. Oh. <laughs> so he came up with that whole dropping the uh, the cue cards routine? Uh, yeah, he came up with that. Definitely not Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and the screenwriter is probably more interesting than the director, uh, as it is William Goldman, who Bill also Goldman, wrote... Hollywood royalty. Good old Bill. He wrote the screenplay for Misery, another Stephen King adaptation, one that had critical acclaim. And he also wrote The Princess Bride, both the book and the movie. Yeah, amongst many of his other works. But obviously, those are the two that are probably of interest to our readers. I saw myself a lot of similarities between. Maybe not a lot. That might be pushing it. I saw myself a few similarities between the Princess Bride movie as well as this movie. And maybe I was more apt to look for them knowing that uh, Bill Goldman did the screenplay. But we had also mentioned when we discussed Little Men in Yellow Coats how the importance of Bobby's kiss really sort of mirrored Wesley and Buttercup's kiss and, you know, mm-hmm. how, how it was one of the five greatest kisses of all time. And th- in this movie and in the story, uh, Ted Brodigan says that this is the kiss that you'll measure all others by. And we saw a similarity there. So we, I had seen the similarity before I saw the movie. So I thought that that was interesting. It's an interesting connection because in the content, yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but King wrote that line in his book and Goldman found a way to shoehorn it into the screenplay. Yep. He wasn't like, I need to write a line about important kisses in every one of my screenplays. Um, but I, I like the connection nevertheless. Yeah. Uh, I also thought there were a couple of um, other connections to other Stephen King stories through the actors. David Morse, who, as I mentioned, played the adult Bobby, was also a guard in The Green Mile. And he was also had a starring role in uh, The Langoliers. 
which was a TV miniseries adaptation or an, an episode of a miniseries, I think. I forget. Yeah. Um, so David Morse is in three Stephen King adaptations that I'm aware of. And I called out Celia Weston because she was also in Under the Dome many years later after making this movie. So got two multiple Stephen King adaptation alums in this film. Yeah. Um, I will tell you out of those three, the green mile, the Langoliers and under the dome, I saw what are probably the two worst ones, the Langoliers and under the dome. And I've never, I've, <laughs> I've never actually seen the green mile. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. And I know it's critically acclaimed. It's got Tom Hanks. Um, it's got David Morse. Yeah, some of Michael uh, Duncan's best work. I think people really liked uh, his his work in that. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember working at a, a a drugstore that did movie rentals, and we rented that movie out all the time. People loved it, and I've never ever seen it. And I really enjoyed the you know the book. I bought each one of those little Green Mile books in yeah, paper in paperback as they were released one a month or however however that went going down to the mall and going to my Walden books and picking those up. Ah, uh, Walden books. Yeah, but I've never seen The Green Mile. I think it, it was interesting, this phase, and um, I know we're going to talk about the trailer here in a minute, Jay, but there were a number of Stephen King adaptations, I think probably following the Shawshank Redemption and how, even though it wasn't a blockbuster in the movie theaters, when it got to VHS and DVD, it rented out a lot. Um, and it became a cult movie. It's, you know, it's on cable all the time. It's always in the top, top whatever three of, of every I, list of IMDb. People love that movie, The Shawshank Redemption. Um, it's really well acclaimed. And I, I got the sense that in this time frame that people were trying to take Stephen King books and adapting them in that sort of style, you know, mm-hmm. sort of drawing on the past um, and a little bit of sentimentality. And almost using them like Oscar bait, right? Like Shawshank. Yeah, like apt pupil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Shawshank Redemption, um, for sure. Then Green Mile. And then this movie. I think they're all sort of of a piece, right? Looking back at the past. And, you know, it really all started probably with Stand By Me. Uh, yes. But all, all these sort of looking back, they probably appealed to baby boomers and um, just relationships. Light on the horror. Light on the supernatural, just enough there to 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 still have some connection, but really focusing on story, which is what King is really good at. Mm-hmm. And I think that King has always had that reputation of being the horror meister, as one of the reviewers that we we read in a previous episode talked about. But I feel like that always precedes him, even in the movie adaptations that he's not involved in. If it says Stephen King anywhere to do with the movie, I think a lot of people immediately go to horror this must be a scary movie and there are so many stephen king books that have elements of horror that have some really dark things in them but they're generally not horror and this is certainly one of them there are some pretty scary moments in the book especially when bobby encounters the low men directly yep that is some really frightening stuff for bobby and he's in some real danger but a lot of that is not in the movie therefore this just feels like like a, a cousin to stand by me Yep. You know, it has the right age ranges. It has the right time period. It has bullies with bats. And, you know, <laughs> like there, there's a lot there that's in common and it, it totally works. Um, but I wonder if that assumption of horror or this assumption of scariness might have always kept the box office numbers low on these adaptations. 
Well, I would imagine that the trailer didn't do any help uh, in in making no. the box office success. So Jay pointed out the trailer to me about a week ago. It said, "Hey, uh. take a look at this. Um, it's amazing how different trailers are in twenty years. Uh, yeah, just it looked like a Hallmark movie trailer to me. Uh, just sort of the the melodramatic music, the cursive writing across the screen." Um, just these odd shots that sort of fade in and out. It was uh, schlocky to say the least, and and not in a not in the uh, horror schlocky way, just sort of in the melodramatic schlocky way. Yeah, and even the sequence of the clips were just they seemed very haphazard. It was like someone who had not really ever made a trailer before <laughs> was given this task for the the first job and said, "All right, quick, make a trailer. Use any of the scenes from the movie, and you're you're good." We'll just put some music underneath it and call it a day. And I don't remember how big of a deal Anthony Hopkins was at this point in his career. I mean, it was 10 years after he was nominated for Silence of the Lambs. So, I mean, he was a big star. I don't know if he still was a big star at this point, but, you know, he had been nominated for multiple Academy Awards for uh, Remains of the Day as well as um, Mm -hmm. Silence of the Lambs. So he was a known quantity. And this is definitely presented as a vehicle for his star power. But the way the trailer makes him look, it's just like, I don't know, like it might have been just the version that I found, but it seemed like even the resolution of the video was low to the point where if I didn't know Anthony Hopkins, like I might not realize that this is that guy that impressed me in Silence of the Lambs or that impressed me in Howard's End. You know, what? What? who is this guy? It's just yeah. like an old guy in a movie yeah we'll we'll link to the trailer so you can experience it yourself but uh mm-hmm. fun times so let's let's get into the movie jay this and we should preface the fact uh the movie is called hearts in atlantis but this is the low men in yellow coats movie yes it it is 95 percent of that story um there is a tad 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 little bit of why we're in vietnam you see a newspaper that shows that sully john has died on a highway um, and there's a little bit of the heavenly shades of night are falling in that the glove appears mm-hmm. in, in, in the older Bobby's house, but it is mostly low men in yellow coats, which is fine because that's probably the story in the book that is the most adaptable for film. And I'm sure that they just called it Hearts in Atlantis so that they could reference the Stephen King book because they don't want to say... This is we we already discussed how Low Men in Yellow Coats is not a great name for a story or a book, but like or a movie. Yeah, uh, definitely not. A- definitely, yeah. But you can't say like, oh, based on the book, st- based on the these short story Low Men in Yellow Coats from the book Hearts and Lands. It's just too much to say. So they call it, and they slip in. Uh, Goldman slips in a Hearts and Atlantis line, which the way it slipped in, even Jay, where Bobby and Sully John are having their own conversation at the end of the porch, playing Monopoly. I think maybe or something yeah. and then it's just sort of anthony hopkins having a one-on-one scene with carol gerber and saying ah yes i remember the youth is not yeah, yeah it just it just comes off as forced in and and yeah it's it's like one of those uh fake pepperidge farm commercials from the <laughs> simpsons <laughs> uh, but you know overall it is a Pretty dead-on adaptation of Low Men in Yellow Coats, with the exception of there's no Dark Tower piece in it, right? There's um, Because the story is told primarily from Bobby's perspective, we don't really know who the Low Men are and why they're chasing them. It's hinted at the end of the 
towards the end of the movie that they're some sort of government agents who want uh, Ted because of his powers and that they're going to use him to potentially spy on the communists. That At least that's the impression that Ted gives Bobby. Um, but we're really not given any more information than that. And really, that's the big change from the book. But the movie hits most of the major beats of the story mm-hmm. dead on. And the relationship between Ted and Bobby is the core of the movie, just like it is in the book. Um, the strange relationship that Bobby has with his mother and the uh, blossoming romance between Bobby and Carol. I mean, all those pieces are there. It's it's a really good close adaptation of of the story. And overall, um, I'm going to say I thought the movie worked well. I think the acting performances are are good. Um, Anthony Hopkins is not who I would have pictured being Ted. Um, I did not picture Ted as being sort of a average height, stocky guy with a British accent. Um, that's not the Ted in my mind, but no, he is really good. I mean, Anthony, newsflash, Sean thinks Anthony Hopkins is a good actor. <laughs> Controversial uh, opinion, everybody. Um, but, uh, you know, they always tell good actors, like, don't work with animals or children. And But Anton Yelchin is really good in this as well, I thought. I thought he oh, yeah. he, he nails um, Bobby. There is a depth to him that you don't see in other child actors all the time. I think he's able to get that across. It's a short movie. It's only about an hour and a half long. And yet, I believe the relationship that the two of them had. Um, it doesn't come across as forced or rushed in any way, which there's the potential to. Um, yeah, I largely agree. I I think that the movie works. I think that uh, for the most part, it's a good, fun movie, and it is very much faithful to the book. Um, and I think the things that it removes from the book and leaves out of the adaptation, some of them, I think the movie suffers for. Uh, I'll get into that in a sec, but I think it makes some other tweaks that I feel kind of land a lot better in the movie than in the book. One of the best examples is when Bobby has his final confrontation with Liz Garfield after Ted has been taken away by the low men and Bobby throws the money, Ted's winnings Mm -hmm. on the floor. And the words that he says to her are not as harsh or hurtful as the words that he uses in the book, but I think they make the point better. And he says to her, you didn't just betray him, you betrayed both of us. And I kind of wish that Stephen King had put those words in Bobby's mouth. I think that's a better scene. I think it's stronger. And not to cannibalize one of my fun stuff items from later, but I really think that one of the best performances in this movie is Hope Davis. Mrs. Harvey Picar from American Splendor. <laughs> that's right. Um, I mean, she has the unenviable role of playing an unsympathetic monster of a mom in this story, as depicted in the book. But through the adaptation and through her nuanced performance, she actually makes Liz Garfield fairly relatable and much more sympathetic than she has any right to be. And you can see just in her the way she looks at her son throughout the movie, the way that even in the book, Liz just straight up doesn't like Bobby hmm. uh, for all the psychological reasons that we've talked about in previous episodes. But it's one of those things where she's a mother and she loves her son, but she doesn't like him. And I think in the movie adaptation, 
she's a mother and she loves her son, but she does like him. She's just distracted and maybe overwhelmed by the societal and professional pressures on her life. And the one thing that she allows to give in that equation of being overwhelmed is the direct care of her son. But it is not because she doesn't like him. Right. And the, the movie also takes away her obsession with money. We get touches of it, but we don't have any of the hiding money in the Sears catalog. We don't have any of the constant skin flint type of commentary and not being willing to spend money on things. Um, there's a little bit of the arguments between a, a you would hear from any parent and child, like, I'm not going to pay for your unnecessary fun at the at the fair when we are barely making ends meet. Yep. That just seems reasonable. It doesn't seem cheap. It doesn't seem aggressively negative. So I think that William Goldman did some good work here to make Liz a bit more relatable, but I think it's um I think it's Hope Davis who really makes her sympathetic. And it makes it so that you never really go all the way to disliking her as a character. Like I never found myself hating her. I found myself feeling bad about what was happening to her and being forced to make hard choices that often made her son unhappy. Well, if you'll remember, I wasn't quite as down on the Liz Garfield character as you were in the book. I I didn't find her quite as uh, much of a a horrible person. I, I think I related to her more. But you're right that they do a much better job in this movie of portraying that. I think part of it is the set direction. I mean, you can tell that they are in a they're on the wrong side of the tracks. There's literally railroad mm-hmm. tracks that go by their house and their house looks run down and it's it's small and it's cramped. And while they're living, they seem to be living a, a good existence, like you could tell that they are not well off. And that comes through very clear, both in the words that they say, you know, like your father, you know, they keep all that. Your father never met an inside straight he didn't like. He, didn't, he left us with a bunch of bills, but also just the way everything is dressed up. It also helps that there is an, very early scene uh, on Bobby's birthday when Liz Garfield has to call and say she's not coming to the birthday because she has to work late. And the Mm -hmm. way that that scene is shot in the realtor's office, it's the first time you see Mr. Biderman. And he's not shown, he's a blurry man sort of leering at Liz from behind. And even if you've never read the book, you get the sense that there is a power dynamic between the boss and his secretary that is not good. and, yeah, all and, all of Liz's like negative aspects or the her, her most negative aspects are siphoned off of that character and put into Biderman. Yep. And Biderman in that scene that that which does a lot of work in establishing him, he's not just like a womanizing asshole. He seems to be downright sinister. Yeah. Like he's like he's like, "Oh, today's your son's birthday. Well, I'm going to make you work late just cuz of that." Right? And and he's just there like looking at her I can't believe you're still on the phone. Like, what is going on here? And to be that despicable as a person, you, that's like a special kind of asshole, yeah. right? And he's doing this on purpose. And that's what we're shown. We don't get that. We don't get any insight into Biderman in the book until he shows up to pick up Liz to go on the trip. Yep. And he's he's a grade A asshole there, but he's different. He's just like, I can't wait to get drunk and have a, a party on this quote-unquote conference yeah yeah in the movie he's just like that guy's up to no good from day one right um i also wanted to point out that just the pieces that goldman pulls from the story that just get sort of nailed right on the head um the fact that he brings up the old bald cheater line 
and, and mm-hmm. gets that in there. I know that you and I are both a fan of that. And he um, puts it in twice. Yeah, he gets it in there twice, both at the beginning and the end, once from Ted and once from Bobby. Um, you get a sense of Ted's powers a little bit earlier as he he knows Bobby's age and that Bobby wants a bike without Bobby having told him that. And mm-hmm. you, you sort of like, how did he know that? And it's because he's he's already got that that mind reading ability. Um, the whole piece with the card shark at the carnival, again, right? Like that's all dead on and it's washed from Firefly, which is an added bonus. Um, mm-hmm. But like that, I thought that that scene, the whole carnival scene seemed to play really well. It cut out a lot of the extra stuff that was in the book and just got right to the point. Yeah. The kiss, the relationship, the card piece, and all the pieces that you need. Well, to that end, I'll, I'll just add in that I was a little frustrated that Goldman decided to keep all of Liz Garfield's many sayings because <laughs> there's a scene when we're first meeting her very early in the movie when she basically just says every single one of them end to end. It's like she's just reading from a list. Yeah. You know, like I get it, but if we had one more scene with Liz where she could sprinkle in a couple new ones. Instead of saying all of them all at once, she started with the, you know, your father didn't leave us well off and then just proceeds to go through every single <laughs> time one and tide, of, wait for no one. <laughs> yeah, she just she went for, through this progression that made no sense in the context of the conversation. Yeah. And maybe I guess I could give it a pass if if we're supposed to get the impression that these these are the things that she says over and over again, no matter what. As soon as you get her on a tear about her awful dead husband, she just says all of the things. Yeah. Um, but that's not how she was constructed in the book. And I think that, you know, finding out a little bit more about her along the way would have been a bit more natural. Yeah. And th- there were a couple of things that were different, but again, I don't think they changed things too much. So we already mentioned about how the low men are, are different from in the book and the dark tower stuff is done. Um, the glove that adult Bobby gets comes directly from Sully as opposed mm-hmm. through from Ted. Obviously that had to change because. And the glove Tigger. always belonged to Sully. And, it never yeah, belonged to they, Bobby. They put that little scene in where Sully says, Oh, when I die, I'll put it, I put the glove in the will. So that was a, mm-hmm. they, they, I thought that was a clever little connection just to make sure. Um, the platters are obviously introduced a lot. I thought one change that didn't work, but I can understand why they did spend it. Cause it's, hard to spend time in a movie talking about books is like you don't get Bobby's sense of how much he comes to love books throughout that summer like they do have the one scene where he's like oh yeah I'm reading Lost Horizon and I really dig it but like the whole Lord of the Flies subplot is is taken out and and you don't really he is super excited in the book when he gets the library card even though it's not Mm -hmm. the bike he wanted he understands the importance of it and Ted sort of has to like lead him there and even then it's he's it's sort of he struggles to it's, it's half hearted. I mean, yeah. yeah, in the book, Ted's all on board for this library card. Yeah. And and Bobby's kind of digging it too, but it he he needs a little nudge, but he's most of the way there already. In the movie, Bobby's like, I got this stupid library card. It's the worst thing ever. <laughs> and my mom gave it to me because it's free and she's cheap. And Ted's like, just a library card? Like he actually says those <laughs> words, just a library card. And then he kind of goes like Wait a second. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you about why that's a good thing. Right. Yeah, I think that that misses the mark on a big the theme. foundation of their relationship. Yeah. Right. It's like how great books are. Ted becomes this spokesperson for for reading and books and how great stories are and how 
they've been getting us through the nights for centuries, etc. But yeah, it's like he doesn't start off there. Right. Which is weird. Yeah. And, you know, like other little changes, but I think that work, like you said, when Liz Garfield turns Ted in, mm-hmm. it doesn't really work right away because she gives the low men some information, but it's not correct because he's not going to be at the corner pocket. And it ends up that she doesn't get paid for the, for it either. Yeah. So which I think is the right move. I yeah, think exactly. we talked about that. Yeah. Like she she loses the money and the money has to come from like the money that they get is Ted's winnings because Bobby has come up with this plan to get the money back to Ted. Mm-hmm. Um what was your sense of how Ted does Ted get caught or does Ted give himself up at the end? Because the last we see of Ted, he's he's in the diner that's separate from the corner pocket. So he's not where mm-hmm. the low men are looking for him. And then Bobby tries to send them away and they know that Ted's still in town with the phone call. Um, and then you see sort of Ted get come to this realization when Bobby comes back to the, the cafe, Ted's gone. Yeah. And, and he's left his cigarette burning for a long time. So it, it wasn't like he got dragged out probably. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't get a sense of if Ted has given himself up to protect Bobby because we don't have that showdown with Bobby and the low men and Ted. It's just Ted's gone. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it. Maybe he decided to, this version of Ted is a lot more in tune with using his powers in a given moment than in the book, right? Like when he sends Bobby to go rescue Carol, it's like Ted is instigating that. He's like, you better go find her right Right now. now. Yeah. Whereas book Ted, he didn't know what was going on with Carol until Bobby showed up at his door. Yeah. So in, in the diner scene, Ted might've been doing the same thing. He's he senses what's happening. He knows what's about to happen, perhaps. And rather than putting up a fight and getting himself hurt or maybe endangering Bobby, he decides the best course of action is to simply turn himself in, which is largely what happens in the book. It just happens with Bobby under immediate threat. You're right. And Ted's not a fighter. He's, uh, you know, he once they have him literally in their clutches, it's like... <laughs> He's not going anywhere. Yeah. It's just a matter of protecting Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. So I had mentioned before how I thought there were some Princess Bride connections. Um, in addition to the kiss being the kiss that all others are measured against, mm-hmm. I also get the sense of he go he goes into this uh, long story about uh, Bronco Nagurski, which isn't in the book, yeah. and it's a Chicago Bears thing. Which if you remember, Fred Savage is a Bears fan in in the Princess Bride. But at the beginning of that story, Bobby says something along the lines of like. Why are you telling me this? And it's the same thing that Fred Savage is like, why are you telling me the story, Grandpa? <laughs> and I got the sense of like, Bobby's like, why are you telling me this story? And the story is to make a connection, I think, between Bobby and his father, because Ted's like, oh, your father was at the game. So was I. We were there. And he's like, you were at the same place with my father? Like Luke talking to Ben Kenobi. You knew my father? <laughs> and uh, and he tells a this certain story. point of view. Yeah, exactly. And he tells this story, and then that leads up to the the climactic scene when he's rescuing Carol and carrying her, and he has to crawl up the ravine, and just like Bronco Nagurski had to crawl to get to the touchdown and the goal line. So some similarities there. I like that. Um, I also kind of like the Bronco Nagurski story in retrospect, because while watching that scene, uh, I kept wondering what the heck is going on here this is entirely manufactured for this movie it is doesn't seem necessary and it feels 
it feels very manipulative of, of Ted. Yeah, I, I'm convinced at this point that Ted was basically lying to Bobby, that Ted read his mind. He knew that Bronco Nagurski was his dad's sports hero. Yep. And Bobby knew that his dad either really was or told Bobby that he attended this game. Like he actually was at in the stadium to see this. So Ted's mind reader, I'll tell you the same story. I'll basically tell you what your dad told you, or I'll tell you the, what I know of the game because yeah, that was a big deal game, but I heard it on the radio, right? Right. But when we do have that scene when Bobby is rescuing Carol, when Bobby is carrying Carol, when Bobby's doing that thing that he has no human right to be able to do, to actually lift her, carry her, and take her uphill, but he has this momentary superhuman strength and saves Carol. That's like the emotional climax of the story. And in the book, it works. I'm 100% on board with it. In the movie, without the Bronco Nagurski story, that scene was junk. It was just, yeah. it was <laughs> it was Anton Yelchin crying with Carol on his back and like barely moving. Like he wasn't, it wasn't the, he didn't just carry her, he ran, right? Like, where is that? that that's not really even shown except for like one little slow-mo scene of his footstep and like this is this is kind of junk, but because it connects directly back to the Bronco Nagurski thing, and you have the score come in, and yeah. it's, it's like, all right, you know, I was getting a little emotional, but I think that's all because of my awareness of the book. That is a really powerful moment in the story. It's one of the things that makes, it's one of the things that elevates Low Men in Yellow Coats to a great story by Stephen King, in my opinion. It's that moment that really means something, and. I think the adaptation in the movie sort of fell flat, but Goldman knew what he was doing. He set up that Nagurski story so that we would have some framework because we didn't have a narrator. We didn't have, you know, somebody saying what Bobby was doing. Yep. And what and what Anton Yelchin was doing in his performance was not cutting it because I guess it's hard to show a little boy carrying a little girl and make yeah, it right, seem exactly. heroic, Real, right? And realistic, yeah. So one of the things that I don't think worked as well in this movie is the, as much as I like David Morris as an actor, I didn't like the bookended scenes, um, especially mm. his voiceover. Um, yeah. It, it was just, it seemed a little bit unnecessary. And the fact that the, really the basis for both of those scenes is that Carol and Bobby never stayed in touch. Like that's a big change from the book. Like yeah. they were pen pals for a while. And even when, they stopped being pen pals and stopped writing each other and stopped communicating. It was because he thought Carol was dead. And here he's not aware of Carol's death at all. Like the lawyer has to tell him, Oh, you haven't heard about Carol. She died as if it's like no knowledge. And it's sort of a shock to him. Um, so yeah. the fact that like that connection, which is so important in Bobby's childhood, both in the movie and in the book, but then in the book is so important that it affects him throughout the rest of his life. It sort of dropped. You know, he goes on to become a famous photographer, it looks like, um, mm -hmm. instead of a carpenter, and he's just totally unaware of Carol's death. So I just don't think that those scenes worked as well as maybe they could have. Yeah, I really wasn't a, a fan of, of his voiceovers either. They, they were just like profound nothings. <laughs> a good way of putting it. More of those uh, Pepperidge Farm commercials. <laughs> um, yeah, they just really didn't say anything. Uh, they had the intonation of something profound and it's just, it, it kind of just wasn't. Uh, and on that note about David Morse's performance, or at least in those bookend, the final bookend, when we close the movie, 
he encounters this young girl who is apparently Carol's daughter. And it's the same actress with the darker hair. You know, she's like the goth version. Goth like Carol, you said. yes. <laughs> yeah, it's goth Carol. And like, I, I kind of felt like that whole dual role thing that they did with the actress was kind of icky for some <laughs> yeah. reason. I just, it was off-putting for me. And to replace such a powerful moment from the book of Bobby thinking and knowing that Carol was dead and mourning her death for most of his adult life, and then having this one last shred of hope that he might reconnect with her, he might see her again at Sully John's funeral, and then actually having that happen and actually having that moment. For all its flaws, it was still a really powerful thing. Yeah. And to replace it with this thing that I felt was icky was not just a downgrade, it was like just a terrible, terrible choice. Like I, I I don't like that they did that. I think it would have been better if the adult Bobby just, you know, hung that wind chime back up on the porch and then just got back in his car and drove away and didn't have that encounter. Yeah, I guess there was, yeah, or not even kill her off. I mean, maybe the voiceover was trying to do so much work at that point. Yeah. It was, it would be very easy to do a voiceover at the beginning of the movie. Like she was so important to me, but then I lost touch with her. I'll never thought, I never thought I'd see her again. And then, you know, have her show up at the end or, you know, or not like there's ways to do that I, that I think could have avoided, you know, getting into the dark towery stuff that they did in the yeah. book, but still made it relevant. And maybe that was too obvious, but it could have, there could have been something that happened there. She didn't have to be Red Carol Gerber. And clearly she wasn't because right. she, she continued to live in that town for until she died. Yes. Right. So she never stopped being Carol Gerber. She had a, a at least one child. Yeah. She could have just been an adult living in that town still. And there she was at Sully's funeral. And by the way, Sully got really short shrift as a character in this. Like, <laughs> I, like, I, I, I think the they same didn't, thing. <laughs> the only reason they didn't cut him out completely was because they needed somebody to send the, the baseball mitt, you know, at the beginning of the story to kick the whole thing off. Right. Yeah, it, they they talked about how important the the three of them were. There were three of us, he says to the lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. And other than that scene where they're all sort of swimming together in the in the ravine, like that's it. Like that's the only the only time you get where it seems like and playing a game. Like, but you don't get a connection between like, oh, all three of us were important. Like it was just yeah. sort of like they were just sort of kids hanging out. So yeah, and there's that extra scene where, and I say extra because it felt unnecessary. Um, Sully's going away for the for some trip with his family. Yeah. And Bobby's just watching them all get in the car. Yeah. And it's like, all right, so Bobby kind of he's a little envious of Sully because he has a dad. Yep. Right. And they have a car and and they all seem happy. Right. You know, but but it just didn't feel like that really hit. It didn't I got that little just a taste of that, but maybe I was reading into it because I know again from the book, Bobby is envious of Sully's family in some some ways. Uh, same for Carol's family. Yeah. Jay, even though it doesn't have any of the Dark Tower stuff, we're still going to do Dark Tower thinnies. So mostly I think our thinnies are going to be about a little bit about how the book has changed to avoid the Dark Tower stuff, I'm guessing, right? To some degree, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the, the closest thing we have to a thinny here is sort of boils down to Ted's superpowers. Mm-hmm. This is a story about a man who has some kind of mind reading ability and apparently the ability to at least temporarily pass this on through touch. 
this is all established in the book, of course, and we know that it goes a little bit further than that. But if you only have seen the movie and you don't know anything about the book and you don't know anything about the Dark Tower, it still makes sense. But those superpowers are what makes Ted special in the story. They're the reason why he's on the run. And uh, he uses them to uh, a kind of a different effect in the movie than we've seen him do in the books. Um, one of those ways is when he tells the Bronco Nagurski story and I think manipulates Bobby completely. Yep. Um, and there was another one at the corner pocket. Yeah. So you had noted that it was a really good scene when Bobby meets Alana and mm-hmm. it's pretty much taken straight from the book. Like yeah. she, she mentions like, Oh, you look like someone I know. And it turns out that she knew his father. And, uh, in the movie, she even has a picture of him and she's able to tell him what a good guy he was and everything. And all that read the same as the book. And it's sort of interesting, but I thought the way that it was filmed, that maybe Ted had set this up in some way. So we know Ted had been to the corner pocket before because he knows to go there for a bet and he makes a point of it. But he seems to like sort of make a point of making sure that Bobby comes inside and stands right by the bar. And he says, don't take another step. I want you to stay right here. And he's in plain view of Alana, who immediately sees him and starts talking to him. And despite the fact that Bobby's 11 and his father would probably be, you know, at the youngest in his late 20s, but probably early 30s, uh, she's like, hey, you look familiar. Could I have known your father? And she just happens (laughs) to have this picture of him. And she starts telling him this story. And Bobby is super excited, right? Like, here's somebody who knew his father and can say he was a good guy and that he, you know, wouldn't buy a drunk a drink. and all these great things about his father. And he's super excited to tell Ted and he starts telling Ted and Ted's like, yeah, 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 let's go. He starts moving on. And if you look closely as they're leaving the bar, Bobby's in front of Ted and Ted takes a look directly at Alana and sort of gives a little hand motion and maybe even a little wink of the eye. And I wonder if Ted had told Alana to do this for Bobby, to get that next connection, just like the connection with Bronco Nagurski. But here's another way of of Bobby getting to know that his father's all right, different from what his mother says to him. Um, It's very slight, and maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but I immediately took a note of it. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, holy cow. And it could just be that he's just a really good actor, Anthony Hopkins, and me, I'm reading way too much into a little bit of a hand motion. (laughs) That's why he got knighted, Sean. (laughs) Yeah, it was was quite interesting. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, another Dark Tower thinny that we can draw out of the movie is the low men. The fact that most of their supernatural abilities or, I, I don't know, they, I just wish that the movie had kept the low men's supernatural nature a bit more in the forefront. In fact, the movie does a good job of siphoning off a lot of that in, to almost obscure it completely. If you're not really paying attention... They just seem like government agents in dark suits and hats, yep. right? There's nothing really all that special about them. But here and there, there seems to be a, a... Ted has supernatural abilities, and he senses the low men approaching. He says they draw west and things like that. So is it just his supernatural ability to detect these particular people pursuing him? Or is there something reflective in the supernatural? The movie leaves that largely unsaid, but the main confirmation that there's something more to the low men than just being government agents of a, of some kind is that when Bobby calls them, he calls the the lost pet number and he pleads for Ted. The agent says in almost an exhausted tone, he says, 
go home, Bobby. Yeah. Bobby doesn't even react to this. He He's so scared and he's so desperate to help Ted that it doesn't even register to him that this complete stranger who he's just spoken to on the phone for just a moment knows his name. Right. And he probably knows exactly where he is, right? So there's there's more to these low men than meets the eye. It's a little bit of a stretch to call it a Dark Tower thinny because the Dark Tower is just not present in this movie. But the fact that the low men are apparently supernatural to some degree, and we know from the books why, I'd say it qualifies as thinny. Yeah, it's odd because you're right. If they were just government agents, it doesn't seem like they'd be putting up lost pet posters, right? Yeah. Like they'd have a different way of approaching it. So. While it seems very clear that they're supposed to be government agents, there's just enough off that makes you think that they're not. And I I don't know how I don't know how they could have made that. You know, I, I don't think that that was the movie that they were going for. Mm-hmm. It, it It's hard to avoid it because it is so central to the to the story itself that they're adapting it from. So they might want to tell the bond between a between a young man and and, and a father like figure. But it there's supernatural there you can't avoid it so right we have a few things of fun stuff what what you got there jay oh well one of the things i thought was pretty fun was the fact that bobby only has four shirts <laughs> i i don't mean to pick on him he's definitely um i'd say accurately represented as somebody in that time period with a lower income family yep so maybe it's just a compliment to the costume design for the movie that this is someone who just wouldn't have a lot of shirts. And uh, as I saw the same shirts reappear in the movie, I started paying attention. And I'm pretty sure he only wears four shirts for the whole movie. And one of those is the fancy shirt he wears with the bow tie for his birthday dinner. Fancy. Yeah. Fancy. So uh, we've talked before about how the prisoner influenced the book. At one point, I got a really clear... Patrick McGowan vibe from Ted. Like it just seemed like the way that he was talking and the way the scene was set, uh, it just I got a prisoner vibe from it. I and I can't remember exactly what scene it was, but I took a note that said, Hey, just a prisoner. Was it the scene when he was like overwhelmed by a giant beach ball? <laughs> yeah, that was the one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my that's my favorite scene. It was it was really good. It was also weird. I it, this must have been around the same time because my notes are very close to themselves here. But it just sort of threw me that, you know, we we talked about how important the Bronco Nagurski story is, but it's a little off-putting to hear an English guy talking about American football. Like, Anthony Hopkins is a good actor, but you could tell, like, he didn't really know what he was talking about. Did he have an accent? Like, a, did he? I thought he was tempering his, his English, his Welsh accent quite a bit in this movie. Yeah, I guess maybe because he talks so precisely that even when he's not sounding British, he sounds enough British that I pick it up. Yeah, or maybe you just see his face and you just hear British accent no matter what. So this isn't a uh, fun stuff. This is a missing fun stuff. So one of my favorite scenes in the story is when Ted is babysitting Bobby, there's an extended fart scene straight out of uh, Blazing Saddles. (laughs) And while while they do mention Ben Johnson and his flatulence, we don't get that extended fart scene after the hot dogs and beans that uh, Ted makes for Bobby. Hmm. The opportunities there, Bill Goldman. Come on. <laughs> and then finally, Bobby beats up Harry at the end, sort of brutally, right? Like he just sort of like shanghai's that bat from uh, Harry and beats the shit out of him and has him running off. And it reminded me of a more recent Sir Anthony Hopkins performance that these violent delights have violent ends. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where he definitely had a British accent. Yes, he definitely did. And 
made me wonder if maybe Bobby Garfield's a, a host and not really a customer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could be. And, you know, that was an interesting change, though, because we spent a lot of time analyzing how damaged Bobby was and how it was an indication of that level of damage that he he premeditated his attack on Harry Doolin. He, yeah. he hid and he had a bat and he waited for the, just the right time to strike and he snuck up on him, surprised him and beat the crap out of him with a bat. While it may have felt somewhat appropriate because of the revenge thing, it still struck a note of like Bobby was a little sick and that is not the right way to go about this. Right. But in the movie, Bobby starts off defending himself and that takes away a lot of that that cold calculating revenge part of it. But once he starts swinging the bat, then he's he's all in it. He's yeah. like, I mean, the movie even gives him a slow motion, like cheer on, like, go for it, Bobby, get that swing in, you know, and uh, on the screen, it's telling us, you know, this is a righteous, just revenge that Bobby is is getting here because it started off as self-defense. So it's OK. But I mean, did Harry Doolin have some of that coming to him? Probably. But Bobby was having some uh he was having some violent delights by the end of that scene for sure definitely so sean why don't we talk about some of the movie reviews that came out when this movie was released yeah i could kick us off um roger ebert thought quite highly of this movie one bit that i i thought was worth repeating was ebert said a movie like this is a kind of conjuring act it's not a genre movie but the story of characters we believe in and care about Anton Yelchin is not just a cute kid, but a smart and wary one. And Mika Borum is not just the girl down the street, but the kind of soul who inspires the best in others. And Anthony Hopkins finds just the tired, truthful note for Ted Brodigan, who knows the worst about men and fears for his future, but still has enough faith to believe it will do a kid good to read the right books. Yeah. And I thought not only is that fantastic writing by Roger Ebert, as to be expected. <laughs> Which, yeah, no surprise there. But I think he's doing a really great job of summarizing one of the central themes of the book, too. This is a story about a, a man on the run who, he's not too busy running to share some of the wonder of the world with a boy that he's just met. Yeah. And I think that's a really important aspect of Ted's personality and what makes Ted a hero in his own story and heroic in others. Yeah. So overall, this movie has a 49% ranking on Rotten Tomatoes, so a mixed bag at best. And the movie only made $23 million. Um, we talked a little bit about how part of that's probably because the trailer was not great. Mm -hmm. But it also was released on September 28th, 2001, so only a couple weeks after 9-11. And I wonder if that might have depressed some of the uh, the box office take for it as well, because that's not not probably a a great time to be released, I'm guessing, as a movie. Some of the movie reviews that I read said that this was actually a really good relief from the tragedy of the day or, or mm. the, the, the things going on today or, you know, what we're dealing with in real life. But they never said exactly what that was. Uh, they just talked around it. <laughs> yeah, they talked around it, but also at the time that they wrote those words, nobody needed to say it. That's true. So as much as Roger Ebert liked this movie, Stephen Holder of the New York Times absolutely did not like this movie. <laughs> he wrote quite a lot about all the things that were terrible about this movie, in his opinion. Um, 
but he did touch on a couple things that I, I kind of agreed with. Um, even though I largely liked this movie, one of the things that he called out was, um, the, the movie had too many moments of like what he called nuggets of nothing. Mm. And it's like, it's sort of what I said about these fake Pepperidge farm commercials. You know, it's like this profound nothingness. Um, one line that I wanted to quote was, sometimes when you're young, you have moments of such happiness, you think you're living in someplace magical, like Atlantis must have been. Mr. Hopkins' character muses dreamily. Then we grow up and our hearts break in two, he adds. These sentiments are Stephen King recycled into nuggets of nothing by the screenwriter William Goldman. Like, wow. <laughs> I mean, William Goldman is a national treasure. But I have to agree with Holder that a lot of this stuff feels shoehorned at best and kind of, you know, nuggets of nothing. Like the only reason Anthony Hopkins says that line is because they need to make sense of the title. Right. And it really feels out of place. Yeah. So Peter Travers from Rolling Stone was a little more balanced uh, in a review that you found, Jay. He said that Hopkins instills the role with delicate nuances and his scenes with Yelchin have a touching poignancy. But Hicks, following his stultifying direction of snow falling on cedars, coats the film in a bogus idyllic mist that substitutes cheap sentiment for blunt truth. So yeah, that it is overly sentimental. But again, I I think that that's what they were going for, right? Like I think they were trying yeah. to capture what was done in Stand By Me or Shawshank Redemption. I think that that's a little bit of what they were going for is to try to capture that this is what our youth was like, and let's try to go for that sentimentality and draw on that. And that just might not play as well in the 21st century as it did earlier. Mm -hmm. But it was never too much for me. And as hopefully some of you can tell from this uh, ongoing podcast we've been doing now for almost three years, the sentimentality doesn't usually work on me. So the fact that I didn't think it was over the top here, I tend to think means it probably was not over the top because I usually can smell that stuff out. Yeah, I don't think it was overly sentimental. There were some other items in some of the other criticisms or in, in some of the ones that we mentioned talked about how like the world just seemed too bright and shiny. The it, that that's where I think like that overly nostalgic, you know, sheen is is kind of coming through. Every old car that everybody's driving looks like it's brand new. It's just old yeah. because it takes place in 1960. Right. So somehow all of these people are driving these perfectly shiny new cars without a single blemish so it works against itself in that way now this isn't made explicit in the movie but it could be the fact that the way it's framed the fact that bobby garfield is a photographer when he grows mm -hmm. up the fact that he they make a point as both an adult and a child he is looking through a prism and seeing things differently yeah it's all about refractions for him yeah it could be thought of that what we're actually seeing in the Ted Brodigan, Bobby Garfield, the Anthony Hopkins, Anton Yelchin piece is not necessarily a movie of what happened as much as it is a reflection of how grown up Bobby Garfield is remembering it, mm -hmm. which would be that I remember the house being nice and big. I remember the cars being fancy and new. I remember these things this way and not as much as it really might have been. Yeah. King talks about that in the books, right? Like mm -hmm. the sixties happened. This is how I remember them. It's not necessarily how it really was. Right. I think that's a good take. Yeah. It's a little bit uh, of a hotter take than Anthony Hopkins is a good actor. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's going to let you get away with that one. Hey, you know what else I heard? Citizen Kane is a good movie. Is it? Uh, so I understand, Jay, that you reached out to some of our listeners to see if they had any thoughts on the movie. I did. And uh, Jeremy Lloyd, who hosts his own podcast, Dark Tower Radio, reached out on Facebook, and he said that he just watched the movie very recently for the first time, and he thought it was very well done, but he felt that it missed an opportunity by leaving out a lot of the Dark Tower stuff. But he does wish that they could have found a way to tell more of the other connected stories in the Hearts in Atlantis book. And I kind of agree. Like, as you mentioned early in the podcast, they tell low men in yellow coats and a tiny bit of why we're in Vietnam and a little bit of heavenly shades of night are falling. Like the, the only story that they completely skip is hearts in Atlantis and blind Willie and blind Willie. Right. So I would say they could have left out blind Willie because it doesn't really support the narrative, but if they had shown Carol go to college or something like that, but you know, it was a 90 minute movie. Maybe if it were a hundred minute movie or a 115 minute movie, they could have fit that in. So there were a lot of things that they could have done differently with this movie, but I think overall it works. But uh, going back to Jeremy's feedback, um, one last bit that I wanted to share is that he just calls it a win because we got to see a movie referencing the low men, even if they're not exactly like in the books. Yeah, I can understand why they didn't tackle all that other stuff. And I think mm-hmm. the movie works fine without it. I think it might have made it too bloated and messy. The, the the focus is on Bobby and Ted. And I think going outside of that would be a mistake. So um, I I worry that we get excited about seeing the low men, but I'm worried that somebody's going to make a movie of from a Buick eight and we're going to get low men and it's going to suck because that book was terrible. (laughs) Uh, And Ray Ray also responded on Facebook and Ray Ray is going to be listening to the audio book in an upcoming road trip. And I left a recommendation to definitely check out that audio book because William Hurt's performance in that is just outstanding. And in fact, Roger Ebert in his review mentioned how good William Hurt's performances in the audiobook. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was like a twofer there. He's like, it, you know, William yeah, Hurt knocks it out of the park. So. And you've mentioned to me that that's how you experienced this book numerous times. Yep. yep. Yeah. So, excellent. Uh, and then, so finally, this isn't related to the movie, but we had a recent um, feedback from Martin Bird who said, Great work. Currently on my second trip to the tower, having just started Wolves of the Kala. I really enjoyed your moving discussion of. Gabriel's letter to Roland, and I'm glad you brought up the Cotet's conversation about genres at the start of Wolves. They actually mentioned the fairy tale genre, and it made me think Stephen King already had the wind through the keyhole story in mind when writing Wolves. Yeah, I think, as we've noted throughout, King is always thinking about books in some way, one way or the other. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's a big theme for the Dark Tower series is how important books are and how they both reflect the world and how important they are to characters, etc. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll continue to see that as we move forward. Yeah, and I responded to Martin with a short note in Facebook uh, about how we are so impressed by King's ability to blend character development and world building and plot connections in something like Gabriel's letter, where it goes a long way towards explaining some of Roland's behaviors and some of the decisions he makes, and it also builds up this character of Gabrielle, and it also helps us to learn more about how the society that Roland existed in when it comes to that kind of convent-like place and and everything. 
the expectations of Gabrielle's role in society and and how she you know secludes herself. We learn all of that through the single thing of her letter, mm. and it's a it's a pretty impressive piece of work when you think about how much it connects and how much it it develops. Yep, Jay, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower. Came, thank you, thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. The horror meister, the horror meister, the horror meister.